You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Admiral Mac Showers, often called Mac. Uh, Mac Showers is a is a Navy man. Uh, his career was spent in the U.S. Navy. He, in fact, uh, joined the Navy in 1941. So he was through World War II and later was uh, also involved in Vietnam. And uh, then when he left the Navy in 1972, after 31 years, uh, he went on to serve 12 years in CIA in a variety of positions, uh, both involving counterintelligence but also senior budgetary, budgetary positions. But I think for our conversation today, I think it would be fascinating to take us back to those years of World War II, which you personally experienced. And uh, so many of our young folks today, many of whom are listeners, um, World War II is, is long enough ago that they don't remember the highlights as well as we do and the significant turning points. Perhaps one of the major turning points of World War II was the Battle of Midway. Could you just perhaps summarize that? What was the significance of the Battle of Midway, and what was your personal recollection of that? Well, that's, those are very good questions, Peter. And uh, the, uh, the Battle of Midway was really my introduction to intelligence work and intelligence analysis because I had reported to, to this... To this uh, Combat Intelligence Unit in uh, Hawaii in February of 1942. Battle of Midway came up in June 1942. And the Combat Intelligence Unit was the Navy's unit in Hawaii that was breaking and reading the Japanese Navy operational code called JN-25. That was just an arbitrary designation. <clears throat> The Navy had worked on JN-25 for several years, but they had not made very much progress on on actually breaking into it to the point of reading message texts because before the war started, the code was not used very much. And as you know, I'm sure, the, the key to breaking a code is depth, volume, volume of use with some occasional mistakes. And... Uh, that is what happened when the war started on the 7th of December, 1941. 
the Japanese Navy began operating and they began communicating very heavily and the volume of traffic increased immensely. And that gave the code breakers a lot more opportunity to, to get into the code. And this was a manual code. It was not a machine code. It's all manual, manual enciphering, manual deciphering. And our work was all manual. Now, I was not a code breaker. I was an intelligence analyst. But the secret to working on the code was to recover the meaning of individual code groups. Japanese had a dictionary that had about 40,000 code groups. Each group was a number or a word or a name or maybe a phrase. And those had to be, and they were in Japanese. And those had to be recovered from a numerical code that had to be uh, penetrated cryptographically and then translated into English by a linguist. So we had, we had expert cryptographers in this unit. We had very expert Japanese linguists in the unit. And my role, along with a few others, was intelligence analysis. We would get the messages after they were into English, and uh, we would do the analysis necessary and the evaluation, put them together with other information to provide to Admiral Nimitz because Admiral Nimitz charged his intelligence officer with telling him today what the Japanese were going to do tomorrow. And by reading Japanese messages, we had a good insight into that, exactly that activity. And I must say that in the beginning of World War II, which came to the United States pretty much as a surprise, we had no other intelligence sources that were giving us intelligence on the Japanese Navy and its operations. Only the code breaking. We had no spies in Japan. We had no attaches in Japan any longer. They had been impounded. And uh, at that time, we had certainly no satellites that were giving us pictures. We had no photo reconnaissance. And uh, our, only, our only source of intelligence was the communications intelligence. So it was unique, and it was increasingly valuable. Up to about February 1942, there was really no usable intelligence produced from its code-breaking effort. But beginning then, because of the volume that was accumulating, we did begin to read messages um, partially. And day by day, almost hour by hour, the cryptographers and the linguists were making progress in recovering code group meanings so that we could read more messages or read more parts of messages. So by, by about the uh, late March, 1942, it was discovered that the Japanese, who were then operating their forces in the Indian Ocean, were planning uh, to carry out a major operation in the South Pacific, Southwest Pacific. It's going to involve aircraft carriers, uh, battleships, and so forth. And we determined that the target of this operation was Port Moresby. 
Port Moresby is essentially unheard of. It's on the south coast of New Guinea. It was a Jap- it was a an Australian naval base, and it wasn't very far from the north coast of Australia. <clears throat> it was a Japanese intent in this operation to capture Port Moresby and set up their own naval base there for the purpose of interdicting the Australian naval activities and our United States supply lines to Australia, who Australia was working with us as a as a friendly ally, uh, and we were providing lend-lease materials to Australia, and they wanted to interdict our supply lines and the Australian Navy activities. We learned enough about the intent of the Japanese to carry out this operation to enable Admiral Nimitz to deploy two aircraft carriers into the South Pacific so that they could intercept this Japanese force. And this became the Battle of the Coral Sea. The Battle of the Coral Sea was the first two-sided battle that was fought in the Navy and by the Navy in World War II. The outcome of that battle was essentially a draw. We lost an aircraft carrier. The Japanese lost an aircraft carrier. We had one badly damaged, and the Japanese had one badly damaged. Two, two of theirs, as a matter of fact. But the main thing was the Japanese had to retreat. They were unable to carry out their attack against Port Moresby. Uh, they never did for the rest of the war ever capture Port Moresby. So this was the first Japanese defeat, and this happened the first week in May of 1942. Even though while the Battle of Coral Sea was going on, we were beginning to see evidence of another major operation that the Japanese were developing, and all indications were this was going to be in the Central Pacific. And it was an even larger operation than what they had mounted against Port Moresby. We had to do a lot of work on this. We had to, we were unsure of the target that the Japanese were aiming for. Uh, Analysts in Washington thought the target would probably be Hawaii, which was obviously a, a consideration. Some people in Washington thought the targets would be the west coast of the United States the United States Army thought the target would be the Panama Canal because the Panama Canal was something of great value to the U.S. Army, who was responsible for it at the time. But we concluded from our in-house analysis that the target was going to be Midway. Midway is a, a fairly substantial atoll in the, in the middle of the Pacific. It's It's the northwesternmost part of the Hawaiian chain, but it's, a, it's about 1,200 miles from Hawaii, so it's, it's quite a ways out into the ocean. But we had developed it as a naval base. We had an airfield on, on Midway Island, and we uh, had a submarine base there where we could refuel our submarines when they'd come back from patrol. So Midway was a, a reasonably significant base for us, and the Japanese decided that they would capture Midway and operate from there in order to interdict Hawaii, which was the main base of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Over time, and during the month of May, we 
gained more and more intelligence on what the Japanese operation was, what they were going to do, the ships that were involved, the schedule. Uh, we still had to contend with disagreements in analysis from Washington uh, for reasons that I won't go into, but <laughs> they were very interesting at the time. But we were certain that the target was midway, and we, we knew what we were uh, we knew what we were being confronted with, and we advised Admiral Nimitz of all this on a day-to-day basis. And he came over to our shop and looked at our evidence. And he agreed that we, that we were on the right track. So he began to think of how he could defend against this major attack. There originally were going to be six Japanese aircraft carriers in this force, the same six that attacked Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December. But since one had been sunk and one had been damaged in Coral Sea, there, it was reduced to four. But they were four big fleet aircraft carriers. We only had two aircraft carriers in the Pacific at that time available. And our Yorktown was the third one, but she'd been damaged in the Coral Sea battle. So Admiral Nimitz conceived a plan with his meager forces. And when I say meager forces, I will tell you that the total Japanese force, including battleships, carriers, destroyers, cruisers, and transport ships that were converging on Midway the first week in June 1942, numbered 126 ships. Admiral Nimitz had a grand total of 35 ships, including three aircraft carriers, one of which had been badly damaged, and some destroyers and a couple cruisers. No battleships. Battleships had all been sunk on the 7th of December. We had no battleships. Uh, the Japanese were bringing a big contingent of battleships that they were going to use in shore bombardment. It was a, it was a really major operation. So Admiral Nemesis' plan was to take his forces, and we got his, we were able to give him this intelligence in time for him to arrange this force and get it ready with aircraft and so forth to deploy three aircraft carriers to a position northeast of Midway with instructions that they were to stay out of sight, not be detected by the Japanese patrols until after an attack had commenced against Midway. And then after the attack was, had commenced, they were, they were to launch their aircraft and attack the Japanese fleet. And we knew from the messages exactly where the Japanese fleet was going to be. We knew the course they were on. We knew the distance from Midway where they intended to launch their aircraft. We knew the date and the time. That was all available to Admiral Nimitz. So the first attack against Midway was carried out at about 8 o'clock in the morning on the 4th of June. And that was the signal for us to launch our aircraft. These were propeller-driven aircraft. We had no jet aircraft in 1942. Low and slow aircraft. Torpedo bombers, dive bombers, fighter planes, and uh, we carriers put all their forces against the Japanese fleet. Some of the some of the aircraft got lost flying over the ocean. This was the first time many of these pilots had flown over open ocean. They were brand new pilots. Some of them only ensigns, naval reserve officers. 
and it was their first combat experience against a force that had gotten quite a bit of combat experience, the Japanese. Many of the Japanese pilots were the same pilots that had attacked Pearl Harbor. But the torpedo bombers that went first against the Japanese fleet scored no hits and lost almost all of our aircraft because the torpedo bombers come in low in order to drop their torpedoes against the ship and they ran into heavy anti-aircraft fire from the ships and none of them scored any hits. But while they were down on the deck and the Japanese fighter planes were down on the deck opposing them, our dive bombers came in at high altitude and got over the Japanese force at about 10 o'clock in the morning and delivered their dive bomber attacks and the Japanese ships were then recovering aircraft from the first strike on Midway and refueling and rearming these aircraft for a second strike. So they were in a very vulnerable position and even though our dive bombers only scored two, three, four hits on each ship, that was enough to disrupt the armament and the fuel lines on the decks and these ships three of these ships immediately burst into uncontrollable flames and never again were able to launch aircraft and the aircraft were destroyed the pilots were lost and the ships sank uh, by nightfall that day three of the four aircraft carriers the fourth aircraft carrier was not in the immediate vicinity of the force uh, at the time of the first attack but was located that afternoon, and it was attacked and also sunk. So we sank all four Japanese aircraft carriers the first day of the battle. That left the Japanese with no, no air patrols, no air cover, no capability to carry out their attack any further, and they did order that night, Admiral Yamamoto ordered a retreat for the force, and that was the Battle of Midway. It really was all over in one day, although we tried to pursue the forces that were retreating, and I think we sank another cruiser and, a, and another destroyer the next day. But the main, the main part of the victory was we destroyed the aircraft carriers and the aircraft and the, most of the pilots. Some people looked on this as avenging the Pearl Harbor attack, where the United States lost eight or nine battleships and over 2,000 personnel. It was judged that the Japanese at Midway lost four aircraft carriers and a few other ships and lost 3,600 personnel, mainly pilots. Uh, U.S. casualties in the Midway attack were 317. Very minor. And this battle, they, it was a virtual high watermark for the, for the Japanese at sea. I mean, they never again were to be in such a position to That's true. The, uh, launch an attack and uh, wreck such damage. One thing before we, we, we close, that's an absolutely fascinating account, but you mentioned Admiral Yamamoto, and I know that, uh, and certainly you'll remember the time, but one of the most extraordinarily uh, incidents involving intelligence 
was the downing of, of Admiral Yamamoto's uh, aircraft and his loss to the yes, Japanese. Yes, I wonder sir. if you could just touch on that for I us. certainly can, because the downing of Admiral Yamamoto, which occurred on the 18th of April, 1943, essentially a year, better part of a year after the Battle of Midway, is considered to be the most significant single action in World War II that was taken by Admiral Nimitz on the basis of one intercepted Japanese message. Really? The, the Battle of Guadalcanal had been going on for several months. We invaded Guadalcanal in August of 1942, and the battle extended into the early months of 1943. Uh, because there was so much Navy involved in that battle, Admiral Yamamoto transferred his fleet headquarters temporarily down to Rabaul, uh, a, a Japanese base in uh, at the tip of New Guinea. He was then chief of naval operations. He was he, Japanese naval operations. He was commander in chief of the combined fleet. Of the combined fleet. That was that was his title. Yes. Sink combined fleet. C I N C sink. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was the top man, top admiral in the Japanese navy. Corresponding, yes, to uh, the chief of naval operations for the United States. But he was always in the battle area. He, he, he didn't maintain a headquarters in, in, in Tokyo and, and stay there. He, was, he had a flagship. He was on the, one of the battleships as his flagship. And he had these headquarters set up temporarily in, in Rabaul, New Guinea, in order to manage the Japanese opposition against Guadalcanal, which was a, a battle that continued over several months. The Japanese were ready to evacuate Guadalcanal and give up on the battle, and he was going to have one more, one more big operation to to uh, try to wipe out the Americans that had occupied the island. So he set up a trip that he was going to take out to his outlying air bases on Bougainville Island uh, to give a pep talk to his troops and his aviators that would be carrying out this final attack. And his trip was described in a message which was sent to these outlying bases so that they could be ready for the admiral's visit. We intercepted that message, and it was translated. By that time, we were translating his messages very quickly and very completely. When the uh, when the analyst, when the cryptog when the cryptographers got the message broken and the linguist translated it. It was handed to me, and I was charged to plot the message on our, our plot to be sure that the time and distance factors that were described in the message were consistent with the aircraft that he would be flying on or the boats that he would be riding on uh, so that we knew exactly what was happening. And, and they were. It, it was all correct. It, it, fit, it fit the pattern, time and distance factors. So we pre presented it to Admiral, Admiral Captain Layton, presented it to Admiral Nimitz with the suggestion that Admiral Nimitz consider shoot, shooting down Admiral Yamamoto's airplane. He was going to be traveling in a bomber escorted by seven Zero fighters. Uh, Admiral Nimitz asked Layton what would be the significance if he was able to shoot down Admiral Yamamoto. Layton's answer was, Admiral, it would be the same as if the Japanese succeeded in killing you. 
Admiral Nimitz thought for a few minutes, and he says, okay, let's go get him. And it was Admiral Nimitz who made the decision to shoot down Admiral Yamamoto. Now, I mention that because today a theater commander in the United States military would not have that authority. He'd have to come back to Washington to get authority like that. And many writers have said over the years that President Roosevelt gave the authority to shoot down Admiral Yamamoto. But that's been totally disproved. Admiral, uh, President Roosevelt was in Warm Springs, Georgia at that time. He was informed of the action afterwards. He did not know about it beforehand. And it was Admiral Nimitz who made the decision and instructed that, that aircraft from Guadalcanal uh, go up to Bougainville and intercept this flight. The Navy didn't have aircraft that had enough range to do that operation, so we got Air Force Army Air Corps P-38s, which was a beautiful aircraft, very capable, very fast. Uh, they were given additional wing tanks for extra fuel, and they we had we sent seven P-38s from Guadalcanal up to Bougainville, and we knew exactly where the Admiral would be at the right time. The aircraft flew up through the Solomon Islands kind of on the deck so they wouldn't be picked up by radar. Uh, and at the last minute, knowing where the Admiral would be, they went up to altitude, and there were the, there were the bombers and the Zeros. And they opened fire, and they shot down the whole Japanese force. I think we lost one P-38, and they destroyed all of the Japanese aircraft. Uh, Admiral Yamamoto was on a bomber. The wreckage of that bomber is still in the jungle in Bougainville and can be viewed by visitors if they want to. But he was killed. He was killed on the aircraft before it crashed, uh, which we found out later. But that's how Admiral Yamamoto was killed, and it was Admiral Nimitz that gave the order, and the P-38s carried out the attack, and it was very precisely done, and it was an operation based entirely on one intercepted message. That's an extraordinary story. Just a last question. Um, Yamamoto was an extraordinarily capable officer, and, and uh, it was a terrible loss for the Japanese at that time. Uh, my recollection is, and, and I know you'll know, was that the Admiral had lived in or studied in the United States for a time, and what was the statement that he made at the time of Pearl Harbor? I remember we were talking about yes. this earlier. Uh, Admiral Yamamoto had been the naval attaché, the Japanese naval attaché in Washington in the, uh, in the early 30s. And uh, while here, he had traveled around the United States. He did a lot of traveling, and he became very familiar with the United States. He even took some courses at Harvard while he was here. I think he was here for about three years. And he, he, he became, uh, he understood the United States, and he admired the United States. He was basically opposed to executing a surprise attack against the United States, as was done at Pearl Harbor. And he cautioned his... He cautioned his uh, political and military leaders in Tokyo before the Pearl Harbor attack was ordered that if we carried out a surprise attack against the United States, that we would awaken a sleeping giant. 
He also said, I will be able to run wild for six months. And after that, I can't guarantee you anything. And he was precisely correct. We mobilized industrially and uh, uh, militarily rapidly to, to confront the war situation that was put upon us by the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, and um, six months after the Pearl Harbor attack, on the 7th of December, 1941, was the Battle of Midway on the 4th of June, 1942. And that was the battle that essentially wiped out the Japanese Navy offensive capability. And a year later, better part of a year later, Admiral Yamamoto himself was eliminated. So he was perfectly correct in his prediction. Admiral Max Showers, it's been a thrill to speak with you this afternoon and to speak with someone who actually was so deeply involved in World War II and who contributed to the enormous victory there. So as we close, let me thank you, sir, for your service to our country. You and everyone else is welcome. I, I love talking about this. It's a, it was a great experience. Well, you do it very well, and you keep us on the edges of our seats. Thank you again. You're welcome. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.